Hey, Maria. Hey, let me find some headphones. I can't find my headphones real quick. Be right back. Okay, is that better? Can you hear it? Hello? Still yes. not. No, it's not connecting. What the hell? First, I couldn't find my head from AirPods, and now they aren't connected. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. AirPods are being super weird. Okay. <laughs> They're like connected and I can't change the audio on them. So I'm like trying to figure out how to make them, how to get them going. No worries. That's anyway. why we take a, we, we have extra time for tech issues. So if you want to try to figure it out, that's fine. Eh, whatever. As long as you can hear me. I can hear you, but the audio isn't amazing. So it would, be, it would be better if you could connect them, but if, if not, then we can just go for it. Let's try one more. Okay. Okay, I got a little beep. How's that? Oh, it's still something. No, no, it keeps dropping them. What the hell? Mm. Is this better, different? Yes. Okay. I can I can hear you properly now. <laughs> awesome. Woo. All right. All right. First hurdle is done. Um Cool. So can okay. I ask you to um, record locally on your machine um, so we have the clean audio of you? Um, you can do it through QuickTime uh, or whatever works for you. Yeah, do you want to give me record permission? 
Oh, oh sorry. You, I mean, you separately. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. You separately, like record record to a to a local file. It's also because Zoom does this weird audio compression that sometimes messes things up and makes things skippy. So if, um, yeah, if you have connectivity issues or anything, it's best if uh, you never know what might happen. So it's good to have two files. So we'll do new audio recording, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Um, I guess, oh, that was weird. Okay, I guess I put my audio all the way up. Although now it's giving me a lot of feedback. That's weird. Any ideas? So I'm on audio recording for um, QuickTime, but it's mm -hmm. everything I say now is feeding back into my ears. Oh, that's weird. That must be a, is there a setting in your um, AirPods that you can switch off? That's like, hear yourself. <laughs> Not sure. I think, I guess if I just do put the volume at zero, I think it's still gonna pick up the microphone. Shit. Like the like quick time volume at zero. Okay. Yeah. Let's try it. Anyway, we'll always have this audio as backups. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Sounds good. All right. So welcome to the Content Stack podcast as yet unreleased. Um, we, uh, I am starting a Kind of exploration of um, the way that people do good work at work, because I think that it's very easy to do good enough work or kind of crappy work and kind of skate on by if you're in an organization and you're there for a while and you kind of just float along. And I think it takes a certain something to keep pushing to do better. And that's kind of what I want to explore in this in this series. Um, so first of all, if you could just imagine that our, the listener to this has no idea about the world of tech, startups, building products, if you could explain, like I'm five, your job. Ooh, an ELI five, I like this. First off, morning, Varya, afternoon, I guess we should say our introductions, if this is a proper podcast. Um, how are you? I'm well. I should let you know that... Um, I'm not gonna put this out as a single audio file. Like we're just gonna record and then I'll pop it out. I'll actually do a bit of like uh. cutting and pasting and editing um, to make it into a little bit more of a comprehensive story. So that's why also you should feel free to, I should have said this up front, um, jump around, like go back to things. It's okay. It doesn't have to be all linear. We can always chop it back together, so. Oh, that's good. Last podcast I did, it was all like very much linear, which is interesting. It was like in a studio. They just did start to finish. Um, cool. So yeah, I guess I guess to answer your question. ELI five, what do I do? Um, it's a great question. So the best way I can describe it is every every job and every uh, I guess every function of every company has like a who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, and so as far as product engineering goes, um, product management is kind of the what and the why. So what are we building and why are we building it? Um, engineering, the actual people, the developers, the coders, the programmers, however you want to um, name them, and they probably have their own thoughts on this, is going to be the, uh, the how and the when. So how it's built uh, and when it can be delivered. And then basically for our company, because we are a small startup and our customer, we're hyper-focused on our customers, which is, uh, you know, kind of the intention of most um, small to medium-sized companies before they get too big and stop caring about their customers, um, the, the who is our, is our shared 
persona of our of our customers. Um, and the when, I guess, is as soon as possible. Um, but that's it. So that's that's the who, what, when, where, why, and house. I might have missed one, but that's close enough. Okay. And so how did you how did you get here? How did you get into this world? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, um, after after business school, I well, moved to San Francisco kind of for the purposes of checking out this whole tech startup thing um, somewhere around 2012, 2013. And uh, uh, my first kind of foray break into it as a sort of traditionally non-technical person um, was in sales. So I was on the, on the sales side, um, actually selling enterprise software. Um, I thought it prudent to learn as much about the software I was selling in order to actually sell it as effectively as possible. And by virtue of learning about the software, I ended up learning more than some of the actual product managers at the company I was working for. Um, that sort of helped shoehorn its way. And that plus the, uh, the feedback I was giving to the product leader at the company um, kind of helped sort of, I guess, dovetail me into, um, uh, into transferring roles and transitioning uh, from the uh, the selling side to the building side. Um, so I became an associate PM and then sort of helped uh, actually do a redesign of, of a, uh, our app there. There's a company called DNN Software or .NET Nuke for some old school .NET people um, and sort of helped lead a transition there from um, actually from an old school, I guess you could say monolithic on-premise uh, CMS, .NET based CMS to actually one of the kind of first decoupled um, CMSs. And so we were directly competing with, you know, um, the likes of the Contentfuls of the world um, back when they were sort of early on um, and a few other uh, companies that have um, since sort of started either faded or, or they kind of uh, pivoted themselves. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it was one of the first sort of decoupled um, CMSs and that sort of like gave rise then to the fully uh, SaaS-based headless CMSs of the world that we're in today. Can you tell me a little bit more about that moment when you realized that, hey, this is something I'm pretty good at and maybe this is something I could do, product management? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to just realize that learning doesn't stop after you um, after you get a degree. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's never a point at which you can say, okay, well, I've learned all I need to learn and now I can just take this knowledge with me for the next 35 or 40 years of my career. Um, and so, and I think that's especially true in a, such a meritocracy as the, the sort of tech world is where people without, you know, any sort of traditional education can learn everything they need to learn, um, just, just essentially for free as well. If they're that, that curious and that keenly interested in it, um, and end up, you know, making some, some really impactful, uh, progress for themselves and then basically making a huge impact, um, on the organizations that they're working for. Um, and so I think with that understanding and with that sort of openness and, and all the knowledge being out there, you just have to go and find it. Um, it sort of just gave me the push to, uh, to go and discover more. So by virtue of listening to podcasts, um, you know, watching YouTube videos, I'm actually taking some, uh, some, some sort of lightweight uh, coding courses, kind of everything sort of started to come together for me. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I just kind of kept pushing to understand that um, there's in any any role for uh, or in any company, I suppose your your customers have certain jobs to be done, um, and trying to understand what those jobs are and helping them do them more efficiently, more effectively, cheaper, faster um, is is kind of the key. And so it's really just having that like very simple, simplified lens um, and sort of letting everything else fall by the wayside. Uh, that kind of helps the cream rise to the top in terms of what you build. Um, 
and that's really how you how you prioritize, right? So the the fundamental sort of day zero question is: Does FutureX make it easier, faster, cheaper, more enjoyable for our users to make progress in their lives? And it's not for the users to actually uh, accomplish a task because we can't always define the tasks for them, but it does make it easier for them to make progress, right? Because sometimes the task isn't done once once our jobs once our job is finished. Um, and so that's kind of like the day zero question, and from there. Um, that, that's how you sort of start to prioritize. And then that's how you sort of start to uh, actually help users make progress. Is jobs to be done a methodology that's common in product management? Not as common as you'd, as you'd think. Um, it kind of started up, I don't know, I wouldn't say 10 years before I got into the, to the, to the field, that's for sure. Um, by a guy named Clay Christensen uh, out of Harvard Business School. And he wrote a couple books on it, which are pretty cool. Um, the most, I guess, the penultimate one, competing against luck, is really, really uh, powerful. Um, it's kind of on jobs to be done. Um, he sort of talks about, um, you know, milkshakes through a drive-through and and sort of Snickers bars and some other really quirky but interesting. Um, uh, I should I should say just like case studies, <laughs> and then that kind of got picked up um, by the likes of Des Trainer at Intercom and a few other, um, you know, the the guys over at Basecamp as well. Um, so they kind of talk about it a lot in, in the thought leadership realm. Um, but then I think what's becomes really challenging is how do you translate thought leadership into action leadership, right? And um, I, I'm realizing more and more that being, while being a thought leader is cool and it gives you really good um, LinkedIn uh, recognition and other sorts of recognition on, on Twitter and the places like that. And, you know, it helps land you a podcast role, which is kind of always fun. Um, what it doesn't do is that it doesn't help you actually build cool stuff for, for people that's actually useful and helps them make progress. Uh, and so I think that that's maybe the biggest reason why it's not as widely accepted as it, as it maybe could be, because it doesn't really give you an action plan. There's no, there's no game plan there. It doesn't lay out like a roadmap for how to be successful. It just says like, here's how you might think about things in a world where you actually are, are interested in, in competing against luck. Right. So in a world where you're interested in making, um, uh, decisions that are that are based on on fact and based on observation but then it's like okay well let's let's try to implement this and very few actually do it do it well so i think that's really where it starts to fall down unfortunately and that's kind of i think the the issue with all not to segue too early but i think the issue with a lot of the thought leadership that's out there where someone writes a big long paper <clears throat> sounds good in theory but in practice um it was a little bit too academic for the real world um, and i think maybe that's the case with jobs to be done in a lot of ways yeah, I think we, I, I learned about jobs to be done in the context of advertising strategy, mm. which was, you know, that's, I know the milkshake example from that. Um, it was very much like, you have to think about what, what job your product is doing for the audience and target your message to sell it around that. Um, but the, the trouble I always had with that framework, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it, is... <laughs> when do you have the certainty that you have the job to be done correctly? And how do you know what to do based on that? So I'd love to hear your take on, on when do you know you're finished? When do you know you have the answer? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another interesting point because that's a moving target, right? Like the job for the people that you're trying to observe also can happens to, or can tend to change. Right. So if you're in, in the example, the, the classic example of like observing, um, people who buy milkshakes in the morning through a drive-through and why they do that and how to better market your milkshakes and, and you know how do you how do you optimize the milkshake for the people who are actually trying to consume them in 2020 
you know, that would have been a totally, that would have flipped itself on, itself on its head because I think the, the classical observation is like, well, these people are driving to work and um, they need something to sip on while they're on their commute. No one's commuted anymore. So now that job is, is kaput, it's done. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a moving target and you have to recognize that. Um, I, I think also there's a, especially in the tech world, there's a really heavy bias towards just pure technology. And, and so I, I do think there's an opportunity for jobs to be done, to be applied more um, thoroughly, but, you know, let's take a few examples that kind of very easily come to mind. Um, uh, of really cool pieces, pieces of technology, but that have no job at all, um, or a very, very slim one, which is like the Segway or Google Glass, right? Like, it turns out that, you know, Segway, when it first came out, I think like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs, they messed a bunch of money and they said, this is like the future of transportation. Um, <clears throat> turns out this little thing that's held up by gyroscopes that goes slightly faster than you can walk, but not as fast as you can run and is completely made um, useless by like stairs and curbs. Um, is like not that helpful for transportation for the for the the mobility for people. Um, Google Glass also. I you know there's a I wasn't a glass hole myself, but um, I had some friends who were, and they bought Google Glass early on, and um, we were kind of playing with it. But who, who's wearing Google Glass these days, right? Maybe it might have been a really cool tech experiment early on for sure. I think it was a good proof of concept, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help you do any get anything done, right? There's no job for it to do. It's a solution without a problem. And every solution needs a problem. Um, you can build a solution, but it, it better, you better be damn sure it does a problem or fixes a problem. Um, and that one didn't. And so I think that's why, you know, these, these things that early on everyone hails as like, or hailed, I should say, past tense, um, as, as being extraordinarily uh, amazing pieces of technology actually ended up failing because they didn't have a job. They didn't do a job. Maybe segues with like mall cops now, but that's about it. Right. So how do you know when you have the job or whether you have the problem? I mean, I think that comes down to your initial level observation. I, I, people, you have to be really, really critical about that. Um, you know, I, I, I can only imagine that uh, the people who are developing and designing Google Glass, and again, I'm not going to hate on anyone working at Google or any of the people who were there, because I'm sure they're all brilliantly minded engineers. Um, but I think they probably just got possibly um, blinded slightly by the tech by the technology. Um, and you can, again, you can sort of shoehorn the use case into the technology if you really try hard enough. Um, and there's examples of that all over the place, but I think you have to start with the problem. You have to, you have to start with like, why do people care about this? And then the, build the tech around that. Um, if, if you're, your talking points and your demos and the, the first thing out of your mouth when you're talking to, especially a non-technical audience about the thing, the, the piece of technology that you're building is how it works, then you know you've probably failed. Um, if you're talking about gyroscopes and you're talking about like slim batteries and you're talking about all these interesting pieces of technology and you're completely ignoring how it helps the everyday person who knows nothing about what you've spent the last six months or a year or however many years of your life on, um, it's probably not going to be very successful, unfortunately. Um, I think that actually helps 
you know, hardware is, is hard, right? Like luckily we, we, we're in software. So that makes things a little bit easier for us because it's just ones and zeros and you can throw it away if it doesn't work. Um, you can very easily in, in an agile way, which is of course how we work, um, build and test things. And if they don't work well, okay, you lost a couple months of your time. Um, if you build a segue, you've lost several years of your time. And so you better be damn sure it actually, it actually is useful before you actually start to start to manufacture it. Um, so I would say that the job for them is a lot harder, but you know, it's, it's, the same job nonetheless um, it just takes a little bit longer which is a higher risk yeah one of the things that i noticed one of the things i found surprising and interesting about you when i first joined content Sec is that i had come from a several tech startups before that where the product manager was basically the ticket pusher <laughs> like the person that procures somehow a list of requirements and that that came usually like it all went into some big bucket, customer requests, CTO requests, ideas that people had. And then it was like seemingly at random as, as you know, made into a long list, a backlog. And then the product manager was the person just assigning the tickets. And what I thought, what I immediately saw was very different about you is that you're very strategic and you do think first and foremost, what is the, the problem that we're trying to solve here? And what is this gonna mean for our product and for the people using our product? And so with that in mind, I wanna talk a little bit about how you arrived at Content Stack um, and what you found there when you arrived in the product management department. Uh, and, and kind of what you, yeah, what was your, what was, what was your, what were your hopes and dreams? What were you planning? What was, what did you see there that made you think I can really make this different and I can make it better? Hmm. Interesting. All good, all good questions. So <clears throat> going back, I guess around two years now, um, I actually met probably more than that at this point, um, met Matthew at a, uh, a dinner party actually for some joint friends, um, and so I think it was an engagement party to be, to be perfectly frank. And uh, yeah, I met, met Matthew there and we started talking. And um, at the time I was working actually for in a digital media company. So sort of internal, but still in the, the content space. So was, um, I guess, managing a couple of different products. One of them was a sort of custom built Drupal install. And the other one was a, an asset manager as well that we built in house. And, um, and we started talking and you know, I was like, oh, I, you know, I work in digital media, but I kind of was in the, the content management space for a while. And he was like, oh, have you heard of a, uh, headless CMS. And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I have. I started to go down the route of building one a couple of years prior to that. Um, and he was like, oh, interesting. We should, we should definitely chat. Um, turns out they didn't have a product manager. So I think the, to your question about, you know, what excited me about joining content stack um, is that they were looking for their first one. Um, and so, you know, everything up until that point was product management by committee, which I think actually had a lot of really incredible early benefits for the company. Um, the, the first one is that everyone on the company was, was hyper aware of, of their customers, of the use cases of their customers, of the needs and wants of their customers, and really had their finger on the pulse. You know, one thing I, just to take a step back or step out of the, out of the narrative for a sec of the story, um, something that I, I try to remind people that, that I work with and that we, uh, you know, in engineering and product and design is to stay close. And that's just kind of like two simple words, but it's very difficult to implement and, you know, stay close to your users, to each other, to yourselves. Um, I think if you can do that uh, successfully, then, then you'll have a, a leg up on most people who um, probably don't for, for lack of a better word. Uh, and so, you know, I, it was clear to me that everyone at ContentStack from the early days stayed really close to their, to their customers, which I think provided a really 
um, uh, easy, easy way to recognize what the jobs were and easy way to recognize, um, you know, what to do, how, how to prioritize uh, the feedback and what to get done first. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think that was really exciting early on. It was just the opportunity to join a company um, uh, who really cared about their customers and also who had like, a really strong engineering team, right? Our, our engineers and our R&D teams um, are incredibly talented. And so I feel really fortunate to work with them um, every day. And, uh, and we had an opportunity to continue to grow the team as well, which was great um, along with the, the, the business growing. And so I think it's overall been like a really good model uh, one that is probably, and we talk about this internally all the time, one of our superpowers, um, which is our, you know, our, our R&D teams and the our customer success teams, which really gives us a really nice window um, into our users um, and, and makes my job a lot easier, which is, which is great. Yeah, so I, um, I prepped a little bit by speaking to Matthew, actually, about your story at Content Stack. And, and he described a very similar scene, which was that you entered into uh, ex an extremely talented, extremely motivated team that was doing already building an amazing product. And basically the way he described it is that you came in with a very strong perspective or opinion, or I guess framework, I don't really know how to describe it, but that you had a very clear vision for what you, how you wanted that department to look. Um, and that you basically were able to harness this insane amount of innovation and imagine, imagination and drive and, and then make it into something that became a very organized, very scalable, very agile process. So can you, can you talk about what that vision was? Yeah, for sure. So I, <clears throat> I think I mentioned, you know, the, the draws uh, or the benefits that our customers realized by um, the company doing product management by committee. Um, the, the drawbacks to that and, and some of the, the cons to that approach, of course, is the lack of um, actual prioritization, right? Once you get too big, then it's like everyone can't know everything. And so you have to start to specialize a little bit. Um, and there wasn't really any methodology applied either. And so we, you know, moved to, although the team was working in a pseudo agile way, we, we moved to a much more um, structured agile scrum approach, um, actually stood up a proper project management and tracking tool as well um, before it was kind of spreadsheets and, and various other micro tools. Um, I think the, one of the things that I got really interested in, in uh, sort of a, the life previous to content stack was how to make teams, you know, separate from actually like what to build and why to build it. Um, how do you make teams better? And um, just some, some observations that I took from there uh, as far as scalability and as far as like being in sort of a hyper growth mode, I think we're, we were able to apply really well here. And again, was very fortunate to work with a team who was willing to listen, um, willing to sort of change, willing to um, kind of work with me to sort of realize some of that, some of that vision. Um, but I think it was, yeah, just implementing and working very, very, very strategically and, and met methodologically, I think is the best way to say it. Um, <clears throat> uh, and we could probably maybe back up and, and just restart this one a little bit. I'm just trying to like gather my thoughts here. Um, Yeah, it was, it, it, 
it took a while. Um, it was a not an easy journey, not a not a fast journey either. And so I think uh, I, I would like to say that I'm not a stubborn person, but there are certain things that I'm like unwavering on when I when I know what what's right, I suppose, or what I think is right. Um, you know, there's a saying from a very famous um, uh, again thought leader, uh, but he is actually an action leader as well. And I think he started a little company called Amazon. Um, and, uh, he said, you know, we're very stubborn on the outcome, but we're very flexible in the details. And so I think for me, it was like, all right, guys, here's where we want to get to. Here's the outcome. Um, I don't necessarily care how we get there. Let's try two or three different versions. Let's experiment a lot. Let's be wrong a few times and be okay with being wrong a few times. I think that like openness and willingness to exchange ideas was really beneficial for the teams because we, um, were again, able to sort of like see the North star and everyone was able to align to it. Um, but then we, you know, exactly how we got there, uh, changed every couple of months as we sort of pivoted slightly. It's a big ship, right? So <clears throat> again, the, the, the team that I came into, the engineering team that I came into, it was, I don't know, probably 40 engineers at the time, 50 engineers at the time and 1 PM. That's like a wildly, uh, unbalanced ratio. And, um, so it's a big ship and, and how do you steer a big ship? Well, the answer is very slowly. And, um, and so it took, it took some time. Um, but ultimately, again, very much worth it. And it's never, the job is never done. You know, to your question earlier, how do you know when the job's done? Well, our job is not done at all. So we've also been very fortunate to work with some talented program managers. Um, at the time, they were kind of project managers, but starting to try and pivot them and transition them, think of themselves more as managing a software development program and not just a series of individual projects. Um, and, and then on the tooling side, of course, of course we're, we're still kind of getting better and learning. But um, yeah, incremental progress always. Yeah, one of the things that I, I wrote down as something to come back to and ask you about is the people side of it. Because one of the things that I find fascinating about the product manager job is that you have to influence a whole bunch of really opinionated, really talented people. And are they, I don't know how it works at Content Stack, are they reporting directly to you or is there like an engineering section that you then influence? No, that's, that's a really, um, really interesting question. So product managers uh, and by design as well, um, effectively don't, uh, don't manage anyone. So we manage the product as it's in our title. Um, but yeah, very few, there's very few people who actually report to two PMs unless you sort of like scale yourself up in the organization. Um, and that's again, by design. So uh, what we, kind of come back around to is the customer who of course we don't manage, they actually manage us, right? We're in service to them and the, the product that everyone is rallying around and building and trying to sell. Uh, and so engineering has their own org structure. Um, the program managers you know, have their own org structure. Um, designers have their own org structure. Um, and a product manager's job is to, uh, you know, basically how do you engender yourself amongst a bunch of different teams, like basically every single team in the entire company and um, how do you gain what would be considered soft authority? And by soft authority, it's like, I can't technically you know, threaten you with any sort of repercussion if you don't do what I say, um, but it'd be really nice if you did. And, uh, and, and sort of how do you, you know, go through and, and, and build up a, uh, an arsenal of, uh, I guess, authority and, um, and, and sort of you know, influence people uh, to, Let's see, let's back up for a quick second. So 
I do want to talk about Zopt Authority. I'm just going to break character here. Um, <clears throat> but the best, I'm not sure you're really sure the best way to describe it at this point. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I guess the best way to think about soft authority, and hopefully you can sort of cut this one in. Uh, the best way to think about soft authority is is that it, I can't tell anyone what to do, but I can tell them why they should why they should do the do the thing that we're talking about, what we're asking. I can talk about the outcome that we're expecting, um, and hopefully through my level of conviction and uh, effectiveness and convincing, um, actually gain consensus and alignment and move forward from there. Um, I think the best thing that we, you know, kind of talk about here uh, is, is in pro as product managers, especially effective ones, is separate from building the right thing the right way. And that's actually, those are two different things I should mention. So you can build the wrong thing the right way and you can build the right thing the wrong way. Um, but <clears throat> the third dimension is how do you get better at building the right thing the right way? And so there's kind of three different dimensions there and all of those are equally as important. And the, the third dimension about how do you get better at doing those two things is one thing that um, isn't talked about very often or enough. Um, but I think that's really where just these incremental experiments and incremental progress comes from. And that ultimately builds up to be um, a body of work and a, and a body of knowledge, um, hopefully not institutionalized, hopefully it's shared and, and recorded and, and a little bit more long-lived than that, but um, that, that you know, everyone who joins the company can benefit from. So what was the knowledge that you used and drew on when you were trying to get better at, what was the third thing? <laughs> get better at doing the right thing the right way? <laughs> Is that what you said? Yeah, building the right thing the right way. Um, <clears throat> I, I think it's, it's, it's a mix of being really interested in um, sort of some, of some of the methodologies around team building. Um, and so, you know, uh, we had a little bit of the thought leadership around from the, the Google teams and, and how they sort of studied who the effective managers were, um, a little bit of things around um, the Spotify team as well. So Spotify implemented, um, I think they, I think they called them pods. They might've called them like squads or something, but anyway, it sort of started to turn uh, the, the thinking there is kind of moved into pods. So think about peas in a pod. Um, for, for their teams and a pod itself uh, as an engineering team is basically a multidisciplinary group of individuals who can come together and basically solve any problem that's uh, thrown at them as long as it's consistent with their, their capabilities and skills and like the charter that they're, that they're given. And so the idea there is that's, that's really how you effectively scale, especially scale horizontally, right? And so if you have if your product gets bigger, if things you're trying to do get wider, if your ambitions get broader um, or, or get larger, you can affect it essentially um, by applying some very lightweight methodologies uh, and, and principles to these teams of individuals that might include your developers, your designers, your product managers, and your um, you know sort of program managers or, or administrative people. Um, and you can think of QA and documentation and and DevOps and all the other functions as sort of like a, uh, a scaled function that might you know, work across all pods. But basically your, your core pod members should be um, accountable and responsible for solving any arbitrary problem that you give them. And in fact, maybe not even 
solving problems that you give them, but, but actually running out and creating and discovering their own problems to solve. And I think that's really where the teams themselves and the, and the, um, uh, the engineering uh, and the company, I guess, that you're, that you're trying to scale teams for can really start to be unleashed because if, if everyone's just waiting for someone to tell them what to do, nothing really ever gets done. Um, you know, I, I prefer to uh, sort of spin up a team, um, give them a, a, a charter, give them a direction, and say, you know, this is your backlog, it's empty, now go fill it um, and, and do so with these tools, do so this, with these ways of thinking, do so with, um, you know, our blessing and our, uh, our encouragement and of course our help if needed, but, um, you know, it's your backlog. So go fill it and, and go, go build your roadmap. And I think that's a really powerful way to not only empower the teams to um, be accountable and be responsible for their kind of destiny, but um, <clears throat> it sort of gives an, an incentive and a, and a push um, to those teams to, yeah, to, to really, um, I guess, own it, own the roadmap, own the backlog and, um, and prioritize effectively. So when you came in and it was designed by, or it was product management by committee at Content Stack, and there you were, um, suddenly the first ever product management hire, did you, was there, were there points where you felt you had to prove yourself or how did you kind of establish yourself as that soft authority in the org? Yeah, I'm pretty good at asking questions. Um, and so I think that's a good way, to, good place to start. Um, I think you can ask questions and you, know, you can think of like the five whys. So, you know, why is something this way? And they give you the answer and you say, okay, well, why, 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 why? And then basically by the fifth why, you've either completely alienated yourself to that person and annoyed them it's to the point where they jump off the phone or you actually get down to like the root of the, of the problem. Um, I think that's a really interesting way to uncover and unpack some uh, sort of hidden opportunities. Um, you know, the other one you can think of like basically just Socratic methodology. And so just, again, asking a lot of questions. Um, I think questions are really, especially if you ask them in a way that lets the person you're asking the question of sort of um, realize the answer themselves instead of kind of telling them the answer. That's really effective method for um, sort of coming in and building building that, that soft authority or build, you know, uh, uh, I guess establishing yourself um, as someone who actually does know a little bit about what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, I think it was, you know, it's always going to be an uphill battle, of course, but again, the team was like, was amazing. That's kind of one of the reasons that I joined him and, and was really curious to learn. Um, and it was an area that I thought I had some knowledge to provide. Um, and I think, so I think that made it, that made it pretty, pretty easy. Um, it also kind of started with a, a series of, of principles. Um, and so we I kind of did this big, long manifesto. It was, I don't know, like 12 or 13 pages um, along with <clears throat> a big, long deck and sort of gave that to our leadership team. Um, did it, went, to, went to India, flew to India. So for anyone listening to the podcast, our R&D is located in, in Mumbai, India. And, um, you know, did a couple, several days of presentations to the, the teams there. Um, of course, answer questions and just kind of talk about things that we're going to try to get done and, and the, the direction that we're going to, going to go in um, and kind of point to them to the North Star and said, I don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but we're going to figure it out. Um, and so I think just being <clears throat> that transparent and that, I guess, vulnerable, but also um, being very confident in, uh, in the outcome is, was really helpful. 
um, I think that kind of gave people, you know, the confidence that, um, uh, uh, yeah, that, that the person who's trying to lead them actually is is genuinely interested in doing so effectively. Um, and so I think that really that really helped. But it, of course, it was a bit of an uphill uphill battle. But I think asking a few basic questions early on and and introducing a few basic principles um, that are common sense, right? Like nothing is difficult about product management or um, agile product development. It's nothing's difficult to understand, I should say. It's very difficult to implement. Easy to talk about, difficult to implement. Um, and that's kind of the point. That's it's beautiful in simplicity. Um, you know, when we like dissect the backlog and people are like, I'll give you an example. So um, most project management tools, of course, we use the Elastian tool set um, have a, a, a default sort of field that's called priority. And that's typically at, at first glance is incredibly useful for defining um, high, medium, low, or showstopper, however the um, you know, t-shirt size, big, large, medium, I guess that's a slightly different, but um, yeah, yeah, typically the priority field, the first thing you think of is, is great. Okay, so this is gonna help us like, you know, separate the high priority items from the low priority items. That's um, actually, turns out that's essentially useless in the in the agile development world. And the reason is because <laughs> uh, it's more multifaceted than that. It's more, it's more nuanced, there's more dimensions to the reasons you build one thing versus building another thing. Um, that might be the level of effort that's required as well. So if something's really, really high priority, high effort, low priority, low effort, or you know somewhere in between, um, those can have an effect on, on whether you take something that is potentially low priority, but if it takes five minutes to do, let's just go ahead and knock that out because um, you know it might uh, it might help fill up a sprint with some extra capacity the team has. Um, it, it, it also helps. It also helps to understand that a backlog is already a predefined list of items. The things that are at the top of the backlog are, in theory, much more important than things that are at the bottom. And so, just with that, like very simple, very like deceptively simple idea, um, then this whole field and, and this whole uh, concept of priority goes out the window, and for a good reason, right? Because then you 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 remove any any uh, temptation for people to bicker about what is medium. Like define medium priority, define high priority. Like, well, no one can. So let's just forget about it. So I think it's, you know, applying even the, the very simple concepts of prioritization to the way in which you do work, not even just the work that you do, is also very helpful. Yeah. So I don't think... overcomplicate it. No, I think this is great. I think I think actually the the very first thing you said, which was a few minutes ago, is something that I want to I want to put a mental pin in to highlight because the importance of asking questions is something that is so easily forgotten. I think it's some it's it's something that I it's something that certain personalities just have naturally. I think um, this ability to listen. I think I read that introverts in particular are more likely to listen before they speak and and that kind of thing but i think there's an extra dimension there so i'm definitely the kind of person that will sit there and listen and listen and listen and only then make a comment but i think it takes an extra amount of effort to really inquire and really sit there and take the time to ask why and understand and I, it's yeah it's so incredibly important to bring that to your work i think no matter what aspect of work you're in so and, and it is a really good way to to get people on your side, surprisingly enough. Um, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about, 
yeah, for example, this prioritization thing, but tell me about other hard decisions that you had to make in the process of transforming what, you know, what is now <laughs> product management at Condenstack. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> again, in a, in a theme of, or the thread of keeping things as simple as possible, um, and trying to implement some very, very simple, but again, in practice, um, somewhat difficult uh, uh, practices and, and, and rules. And the, and the first one is um, all work that a pod, and we've already kind of defined what a pod is. It's your multidisciplinary team. Um, you're together and, and all work that a pod does should be recorded on that pod's backlog, period. If it's not in the backlog, it's not gonna happen. And if it's, uh, and if it is in the backlog, it, it can't be ignored. And those just really, really simple rules, like actually very quickly um, align all the teams to exactly what needs to be done, exactly when, exactly why, exactly how. And it's just like, it's overnight as well. So, you know, before people were kind of spread out and this happens a lot. And of course, you know, you, you want individuals to feel like they can explore their interests and do things, um, uh, you know, outside of just like really rigid list of, of priorities. But uh, basically, as far as the development time that's being dedicated, and I should go back and say, this is of dedicated development time. And so, you know, if, if let's say we, we give uh, or we require 30 hours or 35 hours, and we don't necessarily do this precisely, but um, it, let's just say for purposes of, of argument, 30 hours uh, per week for development time from any developer, right? And so that gives them 10 hours to explore whatever they want to do, and that's fine. And they can they can do whatever they want from that. But of the 30 hours of development time, it's dedicated to the current, the active sprint, the items in the active sprint, and the work that's given to that pod. And so if it's in the backlog, it can't be ignored. If it's not in the backlog, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Like literally doesn't exist. If you're working on it, it's not in the backlog. Um, that's, a, that's a big problem. If you're working on it, it's not in the active sprint, another big problem. If it is in the active sprint and you're not working on it, another big problem. And so all these problems start to go away if you just say like very simply, this is what's, what matters. This, is, this, is, uh, this can't be ignored and that's it. And then all the questions magically start to dry up. Um, I think keeping things as simple as possible is, is, is kind of my go-to, um, you know, questions come up all the time and I'm like, well, are we overthinking this? And then if answers like, maybe, even if it's maybe, even if it's not a, a definitive yes, then chances are we probably are. Um, and so we can probably just move on. Um, you know, there's some other, I guess, agile principles that are really keen or really important to focus on. Um, this one actually isn't even a natural principle, but it's progress of a process. And so it kind of goes, it kind of dovetails into a few, um, a few things on the Agile Manifesto, but it's, it's really just the, the idea that, um, you know, we should really focus on the team's part, on, on teamwork, on making progress, but however progress is defined, it can be defined a few different ways. Um, but that matters a lot more than any sort of processes that you could ever institute. And so um, I'm like a very, process light person, um, although, you know, might not look like it because I've, we're talking about how I've sort of introduced all these concepts and processes and methodologies to the team. Um, in fact, I'm like terrible at process and I'm terrible at documentation and I'm actually probably by all uh, objective measures a pretty bad product manager by that note. Um, but, I, but I think that's for me been a desirable kind of difficulty because then it sort of forces me into the best practices. You know, there's like that stat that like Fortune 500 CEOs have a 70% chance, higher chance of being dyslexic or whatever, because that difficulty 
early on um, actually turns out to be desirable because it the 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 challenge the overcoming of that difficulty has led them to I don't know to learn a bunch of things that were really helpful later on in life um, and I think again me being like objectively a, a pretty bad product manager in practice or in theory um, has led me to actually try to force myself to get better at these best practices um, which is then translated into um, I think good outcomes for the teams. One thing I find so fascinating about your story is that you're effectively self-taught in this and and yet you you had the confidence to kind of come into this company and 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 say I have a vision for how it's going to be and and it is I mean I'm a marketing person I don't know that much but having seen several um like I mentioned several product manager management departments in my lifetime I I really do think it has it is one of it is the best run that I've seen uh, and and amazing in what it's able to produce and how quickly and with a vision for the product. So, well, you're not part of the sausage factory, so you're lucky there. If you, on the outside, it's a nice looking building. On the inside, it's uh, it's it's pretty grotesque. But no, it's <laughs> that's good. Thank you. But so, tell me more about this this confidence that you had, I mean, did you, did you have mentors that you leaned on in uh, before or during your, your beginning, your stint at Cotton Stack? Yeah, a few. Um, <clears throat> I think in, in early, uh, my, my first boss, I guess, the, the VP product at um, DNN Software, a guy named Will Morganwack, he was uh, really, really adept at having this sort of quiet confidence of, about him. And I, I don't know exactly the reason I don't know. I'd actually love to ask him this. I don't. I don't know why he kind of had that about himself. But I think it really translated. Like honestly, it, it really like struck me as um, okay. You can you can be confident in the outcome even if you don't know how you're going to get there. And I think just having a quiet confidence is frankly immensely beneficial to teams, even if you maybe shouldn't be as confident as you look like you are. Um, but I think there still is like a, a, a huge benefit to the teams if they just kind of like see that, recognize that, understand that. Um, and I think that helps smooth over any of the cracks that, that might start to form. Um, and so he sort of had that and that it really struck me as important because I'd be think I'd be like you know, freaking out about something and, and he'd be like, oh, well, you know, we'll get, we'll figure it out. We'll get there. And then we did. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know why I was freaking out in the first place. Um, and I'm a generally, generally calm person. And so I don't think, you know, I think maybe that's why it also kind of helped, uh, uh was a natural fit for me. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind, and he would say this all the time, is he's like, Hey, we're not, we're not building rockets here. It's just software. Like it doesn't work out. doesn't work out. We'll, we'll try something new. Um, and so I think that also recognition is something that's, that's really helpful. And, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how do you get better at building the right thing the right way? Um, and you don't have to know what the right thing is all the time. You don't have to be confident that this is going to work hundred percent before you build it, but you have to at least have some framework for getting better at doing the right things. And as long as like, that's kind of your, uh, you know, your, your sort of North star goal, um, even if the thing you're working on today doesn't work out, you know, there's always tomorrow. And I think that that just kind of helps overall kind of, uh, build up this, this persona for yourself in a way of, 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 of talking about things that, um, 
you know, ends up instilling a lot of confidence in the teams and in yourself, even as well. Even if under the scenes, I'm like maybe less confident than everyone would think I am. So what drives you? How do you keep yourself from getting bored? Um, interesting question. I think it's the fact that, as you say, I'm somewhat self-taught, um, or I guess on the job taught of, of my career and all the, all the information is out there. Like it's, you know, if you're ever bored, you just can Google what's new in engineering, what's new in product management, what's new in anything that you're kind of interested in professionally. And there's a ton of information out there. Like there's, there's no way to be, you can, you're only bored if you stop caring. As long as you continue to care, you can learn anything new that you want that you need to learn and stay, stay apprised, stay up to date. I mean, one of the, one of the tragedies of, um, I think of our discipline and, and of disciplines, I guess, of the product development, uh, uh, and especially the engineering roles is that, you know, their, their knowledge isn't, isn't collective. Like someone who has, who's been an engineer for, for 10 years, isn't 10 times as good as someone who's been an engineer for one year. Um, they sort of have to replace their knowledge year after year. You know, accountants and doctors can sort of build upon all the knowledge that they accumulate. And by the end of their career, they're just like an absolute giant. Um, but, you know, for, for the most part, if you're working in technology, every couple of years, you, you, you don't get to build upon what you learned a few years ago. You have to replace it. And so you're always sort of like struggling to maintain a 100% body of knowledge. And if you don't continually continue to learn more and get better, um, then, then you'll, you, you know, your, your knowledge will start to become outdated and then your value will start to dry up. And again, I think that's, that's tragic, but I think it also for those who kind of don't want to be bored, um, as you uh, dance, kind of help answer your question. Um, that is a huge driver. And okay. Last, last general question I have for you <laughs> before we, um, go a little bit deeper into a specific project, but what is what is the responsibility that you feel to to the company and to the team? What do you see as your kind of yeah? What what? How do you place your responsibility? That's the question. <laughs> Interesting question. Um, I mean, at, at first glance, I would say my initial responsibility is to help just usher, usher in any, uh, any improvements or any sort of changes that are made to the product that we know as our headless CMS. Um, again, it all starts with the product, right? If like we didn't have a product to sell, a software to sell, none of us would be here. And so I think that's like a heavy burden to, to carry, but it's not just on, on, on my shoulders either. I think like, you know, what's really great about this company is that everyone generally cares um, about the product, about our, our market, about our customers and our users. And so uh, knowing that it, it makes my job a little bit easier, but I think again, it's, um, you know, I, I sort of see myself as uh, the gateway to sort of ushering in what is, what's next with ContentSec. Because everything that we built to date, I should say, is outdated. Everything. The moment you release it, it's outdated. And be, it's it, not by a lot, but by a little bit, right? Every, the day that you build something, 
that very moment <clears throat> and you release it, it starts to become outdated because everyone sees it and then it's there, it's a static point in time. You can always make updates to it, but what is in production today is outdated. And I think understanding that and knowing that is really important to realizing that it's never, it always has to continue to get better. Um, and so just trying to figure out what that is and, and um, especially you know, with, the, with the resources that we have available to us, um, what do we do first, what do we do second, what do we do third? Um, that's, that's kind of my job and that's gonna help tell the narrative about what content stack means to, um, to all these different companies. I think story is really important. Um, I think like, I think if you can tell a good story, you are quite, quite far on your path to like understanding the subject you're talking about. Um, if you can't tell a good story, um, then I think you're, you're, you're bad at crafting a narrative. And if you're bad at crafting a narrative, then you're bad at making people care about the thing that you're trying to, trying to do. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's imperative to be able to tell a good story. Um, and I think that's also part of my job um, as much as I can make it. It's true. It's, it's amazed me how much storytelling and being able to craft a narrative has, it really does impact any job in any organization. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I, I started my career as a writer <laughs> because it has made my life infinitely easier just to be able to put something into an email or a deck or even a conversation. If you can lead, if you know the basic storytelling framework, it's just so helpful. Um, so with that in mind, I was hoping you could take a few minutes and talk about Venus um, and just... Well, maybe just tell me the story. Yeah, sure. Uh, Venus, cool. So for all the, all the listeners out there for the world, um, around a year and a half ago, I suppose, we <clears throat> sort of had, had an idea or had a thought that, um, actually this came out, I wanna say, there's an article in like 2019 that was like the, this is right when, you know, the headless, it was a complete headless revolution or something. And it was written by a pretty well-known, um, digital publisher and it was like the 20 it was like a listicle it's like 25 best headless cms's out there 29 best headless CMSs, which is a huge listicle anyway but in any case you know you looked at the they kind of included a screenshot of the marketing website and then if they had it a screenshot of the product and you kind of just were scrolling through this listicle and they all were identical i mean some colors were different some shading was different like the placement of some things was different but they were dead ringers for each other it was as if like a, you know this this it was almost like a spoof article it was almost like a joke uh, just looking at it and so because we we looked at that and um it sort of triggered in our heads um some some ideas about well i should back up again a second as well so there's two things that happened around i guess the, the same time so that was one that article that came out which was really um i think probably step two uh, kind of the first thing that came out even a little bit before that was, and it wasn't really a thing that came out, but it was more of an idea, I should say. Um, and it's the recognition that uh, over time from CMS 1.0 to here's where we are now, which is probably, I guess you could say maybe the third, third evolution or the third epoch. Um, in order for, you always have this like push and pull versus the, the developer user and persona versus the 
business user or persona or practitioner. Um, and for every new uh, incremental or for every new evolution of CMS, uh, in order for one side to win, the other side necessarily had to lose. And so when Headless was like Headless was a, a response to a technology shift. It wasn't a response to a, a business user practitioner um, needs or wants. It was a response to the, the, the rise in the capabilities um, in technology, in uh, database and, and API uh, technologies, in content delivery network effect techno technologies, um, you know, things like uh, RESTful APIs and, and the flexibility and the uh, ability for companies to uh, spin up um, an application that is highly scalable, highly performant, um, and does deliver um, a high amount of functionality that exists uh, in both a UI capability, but also from um, this API that developers can then access to programmatically either uh, modify data in any way or actually just read the data. So, so actually go and, go and fetch it from the, the database. Um, again, then a couple of years later, you know, GraphQL came out and it has its own set of benefits. But basically, um, the, the headless CMS world is a response to a change in technology, not a response to a change in, in user experience. Um, and so because of that, we recognize that, you know, Headless CMSs are great for developers. They're not always amazing for business users. You'll, you'll find a non-technical user who's like in love with, with a headless CMS only because they have the confidence that what they create won't break the web, the web page, which they probably had done several times previously. Um, but if you ask them to on first glance, look at a headless CMS on the, you know, the, the page where they would create their content, <clears throat> they probably wouldn't say it's like an amazing looking experience and a really cool uh, a really cool thing to uh, to use because fundamentally all the headless CMS is, is a form builder. Um, so all you're asking users to do is fill out forms. Um, and in our opinion, uh, filling out forms is not particularly delightful. Um, in fact, kind of sucks and it's like really boring. And if that's someone's job, um, you know, they might be reassured that with the confidence that they're not going to break the website that they're trying to make edits on, um, they're not going to particularly enjoy filling out that form. Um, and so with the understanding again that headless was a technological um, te technology based shift and that article that listed the 29 best headless cms's of course which contest stack was one um all looked the same they were identical uh we sort of undertook a, a project to explore um, how we could potentially make it so the business user and the developer both won and by one, I mean like we're, you know, looked forward to accessing the application, looked forward to doing their job, um, looked forward to actually using content stack and, and really like loved their CMS. And I think if you were to ask, take a, take a poll of hundred people, you know, do you love your CMS? Yes or no? I think 99 of them would say no. Um, so we're looking to get at least a few more yeses. Um, and so that, that kind of led us down down this route. And so, you know, it was uh, it was kind of based on those on those ideas um, that you know forms suck, and uh, most CMSs look the same. Um, the other thing, from a competitive perspective, uh, is that you know a lot of the current market participants um, haven't really updated their uh, user interfaces in in years either. And so we uh, thought that there might be a chance that um, you know, those would, uh, you know, those would, there would there'd be some, some competitive pressure for us to make that, that shift. Um, and there also was a chance that if there wasn't, that we could at least 
kind of get out and head ahead of this. Um, and so those are sort of our initial motivations. Um, yeah, hope that helps. It sounds to me like this is a departure from jobs to be done. Is it, or or was there a, a job that you identified? Did you use that methodology at all in your development of Venus? Um, that's a really interesting question. We will, we have not yet. And I say that because, um, I say that because the current iteration, what, what Venus will be once it goes live is, uh, is just starting to scratch the surface on um, exploring some, not some new jobs, but exploring some jobs that do exist, but they just aren't being fulfilled in a very meaningful way yet. Um, but, but fundamentally version one is just, I should say, uh, kind of like an updated user interface uh, that does fulfill some like incremental um, user needs and, and wants that have been sort of requested and that, and that sort of helps smooth over some of the cracks with the existing sort of traditional form-based editing system. Now, the job that we're hoping to explore and one additional question that I want, that, that we're going to be diving deeper on um, is going to be like trying to recognize and, and understanding and exploring um, what content management actually means from a, from a, from a form factor based perspective. And what I mean by that is like, there are examples out in the world of applications and services that do content management with a capital C, capital M without being a CMS. And that's a really intriguing concept. Um, understanding that also is to understand that uh, a particularly uncomfortable truth, which is that no one creates content in the CMS. And everyone's like, oh, like a CMS is of course where content goes and it's published and it's created. But in fact, no one creates content in the CMS. And if you take like three seconds and you just think about that, it kind of makes your skin crawl a little bit, especially for people who are working CMS. Um, but it's true, right? The, if you look at like how content generally is created, it starts you know, in some sort of messenger tool, like an email or a Slack message. Um, then it goes into some potentially project management tracker um, where you're just moving tickets around from open to do and in progress and done. Um, over to then some, you know, whatever preferred, um, I guess, word processing tool that that, that person is going to use. So like a Word doc or, or sorry, Word doc, Google doc, um, paper doc, Notion doc, whatever. Um, and then things get copied and pasted into the CMS. And so what we are interested in exploring more is the job of content creation and, and, and then management generally, um, and moving ourselves closer towards the incrementally towards the beginning of that creation process um, in the hopes that we can shore up some of the uh, long-lived tabs that every uh, digital thought worker um, actually has where, you know, everyone's windows are littered with like a thousand tabs, mine included, right? And so if I can at least like get rid of a few of those, I think that would be really useful. To be clear, I don't want to necessarily replace Jira or Google Docs or compete with all of those. And we're not trying to, as I say, boil the ocean here. Um, but I think that for the job of, of, of content management as it relates to uh, digital publishing, I think there are opportunities to um, help move people into working on inside of a single system and sort of like prevent them from having to copy and paste or replicate data or having to you know create some sort of connector or integration into other systems um, to do these things sort of, sort of seamlessly. Um, you know, that isn't, there's another, I should say, uncomfortable truth, which is that um, a lot of the contemporary 
um, ecosystems and, and communities, you know, Jamstack being one, the, the mock architecture being another one, um, basically this idea that APIs are gonna, uh, are gonna rule the world and, and basically allow any service to talk to any other service. Um, there was a promise made early on there that never quite came true, and at least it hasn't yet, um, which is that like, yeah, if you have an API and we have an API, like we're good, we'll just have one say hello to the other one and they'll shake hands and you know, we'll be friends. Um, that never happened. And it's, it's because that development is hard. It's extremely hard. Um, it still is hard today. And it's in some ways, sometimes even impossible. Um, you know, you, you get basically you're, you're trying to make two people talk, speak a spoken, it's as, as if you would basically have all the spoken languages on earth, um, be introduced to each other, uh, and the only thing they have in common is that they're a spoken language, but no one knows what the other person's saying. Um, and that's basically how you might have some translators and those translators kind of work in, in the middle and then help to translate some of the spoken languages from person one to person two or from language one to language two. Um, but in fact, the two languages speaking directly at each other would just completely miss. They, they have no idea what the other person's saying. And that's analogous to how the software world is today, especially where you know all the again all the marketing websites say we have an API, like you're good, don't worry about it. Um, but in fact, you should worry a lot. Um, and so I think that's kind of where some of our motivations and going back to identifying the jobs to be done for content management are is leading us towards looking closer and closer at the earlier stages of of content creation um, and trying to not uh, I shouldn't say not force the user to use other tools, but but trying to provide opportunities for our practitioners and our users to um, to sort of stay within within one tool if that's ultimately where they're going to have to go anyway. Um, and so, you know, to the, to the best of our ability, uh, you know, project management tools like Jira and, and word processing tools like Google Docs are still incredibly valuable for a lot of use cases. It may not be as valuable as people think they are for the content management use case. And so trying to help, help them move away from those tools a little bit um, yeah, in, in, the, in the context of content management. It kind of goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which or in sort of in the middle, which was just about keeping things simple. Like in a way, I hear you just saying some incredibly simple truths. Like if this content is gonna be published through a content management system, why not create it in there? <laughs> like it's so simple. It makes complete sense. Um, one, one last question I had for you about this is you, you and I had a conversations at some point about the opinionatedness of software. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and whether your view on that has changed or evolved or how this particular um, innovation fits into that view. Yeah, sure. That's a that one kind of that's a that's an interesting subject to unpack um i think where we left off last time so we were talking about um for example some of the legacy cms players forcing developers to learn how to use how to develop against their system and forcing uh, editorial users to learn how to edit and create content in their systems and it basically is like you, one thing that I, uh, 
and, and uh, our, our partnerships, new assistant person is going to hate me for saying this, but one thing that I kind of is a red flag for me um, with any application is if you require a certificate to use it. So if uh, people are posting on LinkedIn, like they have certificates saying that they're uh, a registered Sitecore developer, well, they had to learn how to develop on Sitecore to get that certificate. And I think that's like fundamentally a waste of that person's time. Um, and so I, I, uh, I, I don't want anyone to have to get a certificate to learn how to use content stack. I just want them to be able to do whatever they want as they naturally would want to. And content stack should, naturally, should seamlessly fit into their workflow. Um, and that is true for both the developer persona and the business user persona. Um, you also have to make it attractive for people to, to use it. So it shouldn't just be something that like um, is, it shouldn't be like, like the job's not done if it simply is not annoying. It actually has to be helpful and beneficial and, and delightful to use as well. Um, if your litmus test is, is this app annoying to use? Yes or no. Um, I think you kind of all also missed the point. Um, and so it's, it, it doesn't just have to fit into their workflow. It has to actually like enhance their workflow and, and accelerate their workflow to a degree. Um, and so I, that's, insofar as we're talking about opinions and having opinions on how people work, um, I have very, very few. I have, I think one thing that's really important as well, um, and we kind of talked, we actually kind of sort of missed this point earlier, but when talking about just product management generally, um, I think it's important to have, to have an ego, but no one to like check it at the door. Um, I think it's important to like have opinions about things, but to also not be so ego-driven, egotistical that you ignore what everyone else is telling you. Um, and so to that sense, I, you know, I, all I want to do is for people to say, this was really cool to use and I really enjoyed it and it helped me in a, in a tangible way. Um, and I think too often with technology solutions, uh, the creators of that technology <coughs> uh, insert their egos a little too heavily, heavy handed um, into the technology to the point where then they're trying to tell people, okay, well, you know, they think that just having the cool tech is enough and they think that's like build it and they will come and they're saying, okay, well, I built this really cool thing. And then they have to go out and convince people that it is really cool. And it's like, well, if it is really cool, people will come anyway. Um, but what's also happening that's actually kind of interesting is that it's becoming easier and easier to, to figure out the right ways to do things. Um, and there isn't just one right way to do things, but there are, there is a, a sort of a, the, the tunnel is, is sort of, this, the walls of the tunnel are closing in a little bit um, on certain development practices. And you look at some of the, the communities out there, like the React and the Vue communities, and you know one of them will make some incremental progress and then everyone will kind of wait to see how the, how the ecosystem reacts. And if it's positively, then the other one will just like catch up and do the same thing. One of them will kind of branch off to the side. And if it, you know, maybe it doesn't work out so well, then they'll like quickly backtrack and go back to fall in line with, with where the general uh, zeitgeist and 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 and, uh, um, and thinking as in conventional wisdom is, and so I think <clears throat> with that in mind as well, you know, there's certain um, th there's multiple ways to do multiple, I guess, avenues to pursue, um, but they're very tightly aligned in, in terms of how they um, uh, the the direction they're moving in. So loosely coupled but tightly aligned, I guess, is the best way to to think about it. And so to the degree that we look at something like a, I don't want to fire too many shots across anyone's bow, but the degree we look at someone like a, like a Gatsby where, you know, they took a lot of opinions early on about we're a static site generator. We are 
exclusively you will have to build and deploy React components and um, we will stand up a GraphQL server for you and you have to basically uh, fetch your, your data using GraphQL. Having those opinions allowed them to uh, form a very tight, and it obviously exploded. So it's incredibly popular for a lot of good reasons. And it allowed them to basically form this ecosystem of people who agree with them. But those who don't agree with them are sort of left in the dust. And then a year or two or three later, you know, you have uh, uh, software like Next.js, which um, is sort of the it's sort of a little bit antithetical to, to Gatsby where it allows you to do all the same things Gatsby does, but it actually is much more flexible as well. And it allows you to do server-side rendered uh, data fetching. It allows you to um, have a mix of both static and dynamic. It allows you to um, actually use, you know, your own RESTful APIs if you really want to. So it has a lot of capabilities that, uh, that, that Gatsby doesn't. And it's in fact a lot less opinionated, um, but just as powerful. Now, there's probably a trade-off there. And the trade-off is that you're not going to find as consistent a level of, of training and thought leadership and getting your answers or your questions answered as you would in the Gatsby community because the questions that arise for a Gatsby developer are going to be the same for any Gatsby developer, right? Because it's like a very, very, very closely knit series of, of things to learn. Um, however, uh, like I said, it, it, you know, the, the next community then does have some additional capabilities that Gatsby doesn't today. Um, now, where will they both end up? Who knows? Um, but I think that they're learning from each other. And the one thing that I think the next community learned is that uh, we want to provide technology solutions, but remain as flexible as possible and have very few opinions about how those solutions are implemented. To round this out, I want to go slightly back to ego at the checking your ego at the door, or rather, was Venus? It's it's a little bit of a of a like for when you when you think about it, it makes complete sense that a product like this should be not annoying. Uh, it should be delightful to use. But if you if you look around, obviously none of almost no no other CMS that I know is investing into this particular area. So I'm wondering whether Venus was your idea and whether you had to push for it or whether it was kind of accepted immediately as like, of course, this is the direction we should go. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the, uh, the observations that I kind of mentioned earlier were, were shared, but I, you know, I think it, it we had these conversations early on and, and we thought, well, um, this is because of everything I, I mentioned and probably a few additional points as well around like us, having explicitly uh, trying to define ourselves as like a leader in kind of all areas of, of content management and sort of, I should take a step back actually and say that one of the, one of the, the principles, the founding principles that we are uh, keenly uh, focused on is equality for all of our personas. So equality amongst business and uh, developer users and not focusing or not ignoring one over the other. And the fact that headless CMSs exist in the first place, at least this current iteration of headless CMSs is a testament to the fact that there is no equality. Um, it was literally a, a te technology shift. It was not a shift in, in business user focus. If you look at, uh, you know, WordPress, even today with its, with its 100,000 plugins that do all sorts of really cool and interesting and unique um, business level uh, functionality and then you 
transition those users over to a headless CMS, those business users lose a lot of functionality. Um, now they are going to gain and and again the, the confidence that what they do isn't going to break their website, um, and the developers obviously gain a ton. But the, in by all objective measures, the business users lost, um, and so we, you know, in in the effort of maintaining that sort of equality and um, uh, catering to to both of our personas or core personas, you know, we really wanted to um, sort of reinvent. Um, what it meant to to use a headless CMS while still providing, of course, all the amazing benefits to the developer that they had before. So it was so true to our company ethos that it wasn't really an argument. Not much of one, I don't think. Um, yeah, again, I think we all generally, uh, the nice thing about, again, the, the company staying so close to our users and and by the way, I, I stand on soapbox for a minute. I think there's going to need to be a a uh, a, a, a hard conversation around what we call people who use our our software and software in general. I think drug dealers and people who make software are the only people who have the term users, um, which I don't know what kind of camp that puts us into. But our our customers, our practitioners, the people that. Uh, that log in, right? So we'll have to find a new a new term for this one of these days. But I'm just gonna plant my stake in that in, in that camp. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, kind of going back to to your question, uh, there wasn't a big there wasn't a big uh, big pushback. I think we all pretty easily recognized what the right thing to do was, and so the question was, how do we get it done? Awesome. I think that's all the questions I had, <laughs> all <laughs> hour and a half later. <laughs> um, is there anything that you, you feel like you want to go back to or that I missed or anything else? Just that's um, your mind. Let's see. I don't think so. Um, so I can put some like Venus screens here. Uh, I mean, we talked about, you know, that's the form builders, I guess. Um, talk about some of our motivations. I mean, it, I don't think that the, I'm not sure that the overall content is very clean. Um, there's a lot of like ums and ors and hmm. Oh, you but, have people uh, for that. I have people for that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Cool. It's well, amazing what they can do now. Is that right? You have software that does that even. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that kind of covered it. Nothing else. No, it was really... great. It was great. I mean, I don't I don't think anything was missing. And if you do feel like there's something that you you, you wanted to add or whatever, we can always either record or I, I can add it in the VO or, or clarify or anything else. So, um, yeah, thank you. This was fascinating. <laughs> I enjoyed listening to your stories so much. Um, and I, I will, uh, I'll run it by you, of course, before I publish anything. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to, to editing it into some podcasts. Cool. Thanks, Mariah. What's this, what's this going? Is this part of like your podcast or is this one of the, uh, the one that the content stack is producing or what is, where's this going? Yeah, it's a content stack podcast. Um, as yet, unnamed 
<laughs> I'm still noodling on the name, the the, the concept, everything. Um, but I think it'll probably be called What's Better. And it will be content like branded podcasts. So obviously we have Neha's podcast, Dreammakers, but that's taken on its its own life as like a women entrepreneurs thing. Mm. Um, so I felt it was time for us to have something that was a little bit more our brand. Um, and it was really born out of the the brand discussion we had at the strategy sessions that that really made it clear that our customers are people that are always pushing for better or not settling for good enough. And um, I felt like there was a lot of really good stories to tell there. So that's what this is. Um, Stay tuned. I don't have any specifics on timings or anything, but I'm hoping to get it out soon. I just have to get a few more episodes under under my belt. Yeah, nice. What are the other ones you're doing? So far I did one with, um, well, I just did a practice one with my friend Eva at Commerce Tools, but actually it turned out to be a pretty good story. <laughs> so um, so there's that. And then uh, I will be probably recording one with um, John West about his, uh, if he agrees, <laughs> his transition from building an entire industry and technology and then turning your back on it and going to something totally different. Um, yeah, and I don't know yet. <laughs> if, if you have any other ideas, um, shoot them over. I'm I'm always uh, I'm still kind of I have lots of lots of plans, but nothing concrete yet. So okay, cool. Yeah, let's do it again. That was fun. Awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, there's honestly there's.